I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood, and I'm very happy to be joined by Comfort Hero, Crisis Group's interim vice president, our long-serving Africa director, who's joining today as co-host. Comfort, welcome on. Thanks very much for having me on again. So, as we speak, Russian President Vladimir Putin has deployed perhaps as many as 100,000 troops on the Ukraine border. We talked about that last week. Today, we're going to talk about another part of the world where Russia's locking horns with the West. We're going to talk about Russia and Africa. France remains the largest presence and troop numbers of any former colonial power in Africa. Russia is challenging the status quo. Using regional insecurity and diplomatic disputes with Western powers as leverage, Russia has announced a series of deals to expand its presence on the continent. In the, the Republican uh, Central African country, uh, there is really a, a proxy war on the field because the Wagner is taking care of the presidency uh, security against the French. So it's, uh, it's contaminating the relationship between the two uh, countries. The Central African Republic tends not to get a lot of media attention. But for those of us watching, Russia's increasing involvement in the country over the past few years has been striking. A Russian military contractor, the Wagner Group, is leading an offensive against rebels in the provinces. Moscow denies links to the Wagner Group, but the group is widely perceived to have close ties with the Kremlin. Russia became the closest foreign ally of Central African President Faustin Ashang Tudori about three years ago. As for Wagner, it was instrumental this past year in pushing rebels back from the capital and tipping the balance of power in favour of Tuadera. Long live Russia and bye-bye France. His men chanted at a press conference to show support for Mali's ruling junta after reports that it was close to a deal with Russian private security group Wagner. One of the key interests is a, a new naval base. Uh, Russia has been negotiating for a couple of years with the Sudanese to establish a naval logis logistics base on its Red Sea coast, an extremely strategic place to put a Russian naval base. 
The Central African Republic is just the latest in a series of places in Africa where Russia's got involved, either directly or with Wagner. Western officials, indeed many Africans, complain that Moscow uses military cooperation as a springboard for political meddling. It's recently shipped helicopters to Mali, fueling rumours that Wagner forces might soon take on Islamist militants in the Sahel. That's caused consternation in Paris, which largely dictates Western policy in the Sahel. There's also talk of Russia potentially building a base in Port Sudan, on Sudan's Red Sea coast. So what is Putin up to in Africa? Is it about winning influence at the West's expense? Or is it more about profiteering by Wagner or lucrative mining concessions? Is there a strategy with an end goal? Or is Putin just testing the waters to see what he can gain? And whatever the Russian president's intention, what's the impact for Africa itself? Today, we're very happy to welcome on Pauline Bax, our senior Africa advisor. Pauline's just published a piece on Russia in the Central African Republic. She's part of a team doing some broader work on Russia and Africa. Pauline, welcome on. Thank you, Richard. So, Pauline, perhaps to start, could you tell us a little bit about what the Russian presence in the Central African Republic entails? Yes, Russia's presence in the Central African Republic dates back about three years. The first contacts were established in 2017 with Moscow, and in 2018, Wagner troops started arriving as instructors for the army. Russia was present in terms of mining concessions. Uh, that is to say that some Russian companies cut mining concessions in 2018. But it was all fairly low profile until a rebel attack on the capital Bangui in January. Russia massively stepped up its visibility in the Central African Republic by getting involved in a counter-offensive with the army against the rebels in February. And since then, we have seen much more propaganda, pro-Russian propaganda. For example, it's clear now that Russia sponsored at least one radio station. Um, there are many Russian advisors in the government, which was already the case about two years ago. But uh, most, some of these Russian advisors are very visible on social media. Wagner has produced a film highlighting the prowess of Wagner troops or Wagner mercenaries in South African Republic, which was screened in a stadium in Bangui earlier this year. Uh, access was free, so thousands of people came to watch it. And I think all in all, uh, right now, it's very clear that Wagner is very much involved in Central African Republic, even though the government continues to deny that Wagner is there and Russia continues to deny this as well. And um, most recently, anecdotally, Russian will now be taught at uh, universities in the country, which was just announced last week. So there's really no secret about it anymore. It seems that really the Russian presence, the presence of Wagner operatives, Wagner fighters, was sort of pivotal in repelling rebels just around the elections in February this year and really kind of pushing rebels back up into the northeast. How do people view those gains? You know, it was a very, um, this has never happened before in, in, in the country where the government manages to restore control or at least um, push back the rebels out of most of the provinces because um, many areas in the country had been held by rebels for almost two decades now in a sort of uneasy uh, coexistence, I should say. Previously, other foreign countries had tried to intervene, but they never got very far. And it's true that the mercenaries really made a lot of gains. Uh, they've really pushed out into the northwest, in the northeast, and into the east of the country. And um, a lot of Central Africans, especially in the capital Bangui, where the propaganda machine is in, in full swing, uh, saw the, uh, understood that the country was being liberated. 
The counteroffensive started in February, and by April, most of the mercenary forces had seized major towns across the country. Uh, so there was a major uh, feat. Now we're a few months later, and it's clear that the mercenaries are still in the provinces, but they are not able to hold control of all these towns. And the rebels are mounting um, counterattacks, especially on the army, but also on Russians. There have been losses. And it's very hard for a mercenary force of about 2,000 people maximum in a country of 600,000 square kilometers to keep control of these cities and towns that it has captured so far. So in the long run, what the government would have to do is restore some kind of state presence in any of these cities and villages that it has captured so far, but the government does not seem to have the means to do so. So in a sense, is this sustainable in the long run? It could be. It's a big country, but it's not densely populated. Um, although there seems to have been a particular focus on mining areas in Central African Republic where the mercenary forces are concentrated. So um, there seems to be more interest in securing mining zones than really in reviving towns and repopulating them with civil servants and some sort of state presence. And Pauline, what is their relationship then with the, from what I understand, very weak Central African army? They're sort of like a, a spearhead and then they fight alongside the army. And there are also UN peacekeepers there. Sort of what is the relationship between the Wagner forces and UN peacekeepers? Is there any sort of coordination? So the official government narrative, of course, is that the army is leading the offensive. There's about 10,000 troops maximum. So they're uh, bigger than the mercenary force. Uh, but security forces on the ground uh, told me that the offensive is really led by Russians and the National Army comes uh, with the troops, but they are being commanded and being instructed by the mercenary force who have much more military experience and much better equipment because the army is lacking in equipment and it's only just been trained. So they're quite struggling. And the problem now that arises is that the UN peacekeeping force is also there, as you just mentioned, and that um, sometimes uh, there are combat zones where the UN is not allowed to enter or where UN forces might clash with uh, national or mercenary forces. This has not happened yet. And indeed, there was a strong collaboration in January when Bangui was attacked, where actually the UN and Wagner troops worked together to push away the rebels uh, successfully, but the UN was criticized for working together with a mercenary force that officially did not exist in the country. So in the long run, uh, the UN sees this as an issue. Uh, it has been stopped sometimes from entering certain zones. At the same time, there's a propaganda campaign in Bangui against the UN, and the anti-UN sentiment, at least in the capital, is extremely strong. This has created a very tense atmosphere, um, especially, uh, you know, not just with the people and uh, the UN itself, but between the UN and with the mercenary force, because they are not able to collaborate in any way. Mm. Pauline, can I just um, drill down a little bit on the reports of human rights um, abuses? Can you give a little bit more detail about the nature of those violations and also what this means then about the relationship between you know, CAR and Wagner's activities going forward? There have been a lot of reports mostly coming from uh, UN investigators, and these reports are extrajudicial killings, abductions. There has been a lot of reports of gender-based violence, in particular rape, and um, summary executions. Some reports have come in of suspected rebels having been executed by, uh, as they say, bilateral forces, which in this case means the mercenaries. There have been uh, religious leaders, imams have been abducted, never to be seen again. 
Um, and the, the problem with Central African Republic is that it's hard to access certain areas. There's not much visibility. And some of these reports trickle in from the countryside uh, to the capital uh, many weeks later. And it's really not clear what is happening exactly. Um, but one thing is sure is that the uh, army, as well as the mercenary force, is responsible for many incidents, security incidents that have happened in recent months. It is worrying the UN, the UN peacekeeping force in the UN, uh, you know, at large. Um, but there's really not much uh, people can do about it. Thanks, Pauline. I know you've just come back from CAR and you had various conversations with, with diplomats and, and others in Bangui. How does closer ties between um, the president and Moscow affect his relationships with the West, which up until till now he was very much reliant, particularly on main donors like the EU and the US and France, particularly for shoring up the country? So Tuadera, President Tuadera uh, hired his uh, a Russian advisor as his national security advisor uh, back in 2018 already. So it was clear that there was some kind of military strategy in the making. Um, there seem to be more advisors than just military, however. There are economic advisors, there are political advisors. The problem is that nobody really knows who these people are, except for the national security advisor, who was very active and vocal on social media. Uh, the Russian ambassador has also been quite outspoken um, until he uh, left the country in around July. The problem that many other um, donors see is that they don't really know who to speak to. So, for example, if there's a security incident, if somebody gets shot on the countryside or the UN doesn't get access to a certain zone or bodies are found, people can go and speak to the president or the presidency and um, make them aware of their concerns, but they don't really know who they are talking to, either just speaking to the presidency or are they speaking to the presidency and his advisors. I think donors are annoyed, and it's a strong word, but they are really annoyed, is that they uh, Western powers provide millions of dollars in uh, budget aid, humanitarian aid, economic aid, help to uh, sort out the customs, systems and meanwhile Russia is investing in military cooperation but doesn't seem to invest at all in any kind of development aid. So even if the government of Central African Republic sort of maligns the Western powers or maligns the UN and says you know they're useless and they're not helping us, they're sustaining the conflict, which is not true, um, they still accept their money. Whereas Russia doesn't really give any money in development or security at all apart from Wagner which is officially not Russian money. So there's a lot of invisibility and a lack of transparency overall, and people don't really know who to work with and who to turn to if problems arise. And Pauline, as we said up top, the links between uh, Wagner and the Russian government, obviously uh, the Kremlin denies having direct links. But you know, if you're on the ground in the Central African Republic, whether you're in Bangui in the capital or whether you're on the sharp end in some of these areas where there's fighting, how do people on the ground perceive Wagner operatives as Russian soldiers or as something different? Generally, people speak about Les Russes, the Russians, even though it's clear that there are also other forces there. So, for example, there are Libyan fighters and Syrian fighters, uh, Chechens, Ukrainians. But the umbrella term, of course, is uh, the Russians. And there's a big gap between how people perceive them in the capital, which has been safe since January and where life goes on as usual. 
and the provinces where the perception of the Russians is very negative. And there's a lot of fear um, because they, again, there have been reports of indiscriminate killings, abductions, and uh, even in places where this does not happen, there have been a lot of arrest and intimidation. So people are very scared. Um, uh, because they don't really know who they're dealing with. And most of the uh, foreign fighters do not speak French or the local language, and they can't communicate with them. So they're facing a force uh, they are scared of and they don't know how to deal with. We should move to, to other places in Africa in a moment, but just one more question on, on the Central African Republic. I mean, it, it, it's obviously quite alluring for a president like Twadera. He's had to deal with rebels with whom he signed peace agreements. They've reneged every time. They advanced on the capital. They tried to oust him. It's got to be quite alluring when a foreign power comes in and says, we'll fight them for you. We'll defeat them for you. But in reality, you know, is, is it a sustainable approach? Is that realistic that you can sort of eradicate these big armed groups that until recently controlled you know, large tracts of the Northeast? Maybe it's not possible, but he's giving it a try. And I think we should understand uh, to adhere or at least not be too critical of him for having uh, hired a force that will fight for him and that builds up his army. The January attack in Bangui uh, came very close to, uh, I wouldn't say to ousting him, but the intent was to oust him. And if those foreign forces hadn't been there, he would no longer be the president. So now he relies on those forces to stay in power. And they have really made uh, significant gains that other forces haven't been able to make. And he is allowed to hire foreign mercenaries to help fight his army and build it up. So I think the intention here, I think we should um, be understanding of it. The question is... Where would he get the money to pay these forces? Uh, and if he would want to bring in a larger mercenary force, maybe 5,000 men that could actually hold control of the entire territory, how would he pay them? I think he's in a very difficult position right now. He now relies on these forces in every way, uh, economically, politically and militarily. Um, and he has no way but to go forward. If he withdraws the Wagner force, Bangui may be overrun by rebels. This is a good possibility. So some people that I spoke to, uh, even Central Africans within the government, said in a way that there's no way out but to keep them there and to let them have what they need to pay themselves. Thanks, Pauline. Um, so, I mean, we've talked about CAR, but that is only the, the latest of places where Russia and in some cases Wagner has stepped up activities over, over recent years. I wanted to ask you specifically about um, one of CAR's closer neighbours, Sudan, where initially we saw Russia develop close relationships uh, with um, Bashir um, before his ouster. And actually there was a, a Sudanese and Russian peace initiative um, that, that was eventually brought under the AU auspices that resulted in the 2019 um, peace deal with the armed groups in CAR. Um, can you Give us sort of a, a broad picture about the relationships between Bashir, you know, and Russia, and how Russia now has navigated um, its relationships with Sudan since Sudan's revolution um, in April 2019. Yes, yeah, Sudan was for a long time one of uh, Russia's favorite uh, allies in Africa, um, and as you rightly say, they uh, it supported uh, the Al Bashir regime. Uh, for many years, uh, up to uh, sending operatives to spread 
anti-Western propaganda during protest against al-Bashir before he was ousted. Under uh, al-Bashir, there was a uh, military cooperation agreement again and lots of weapons uh, deliveries. Uh, there was also a talk of expanding Russia's um, military footprint in Sudan. Um, a, a contract was signed uh, between Sudan and Russia um, for a uh, naval base. Um, the idea was that Russia would build a naval base uh, on the Red Sea in Port Sudan. Um, Putin made this uh, agreement known in 2020. Um, so this was after al-Bashir left. Um, this agreement survives to this day, but has been put on hold by the new Sovereign Council of Sudan. It seems that they want to go ahead with this naval base but Sudan desperately needs money to help its economy. It needs uh, maybe Western money. And there are reports that the U.S. Uh, has offered millions of dollars in aid uh, if Sudan cancels the contract for the naval base. Of course, this is only reports and not something we can uh, confirm uh, right here. Uh, I don't know what the status is, but this naval base uh, hasn't been canceled completely, but has been put on hold for now. Uh, it's clear that um, Russia will continue to support Sudan. Uh, in the coming years, uh, as it has done since the late 1960s. Yeah, Pauline, can we come to the misadventure um, in Mozambique? And we've seen there fighting with uh, the Islamist in um, Capo um, Delgado. Um, what does this say again about um, Russia's footprint on the continent? Yeah, I think Mozambique was a very interesting example of of sort of uh, unpacking the Russian uh, the Russian response, if you will. It seems that there's often a, um, a convergence of factors for if, if Russia is going to try to be influential somewhere. And so uh, often you can answer the following questions. Does a country need weapons? Uh, are there interesting mineral uh, or energy uh, resources? And can it challenge the influence of Western powers in the country? And Mozambique was very interesting because you could answer all those questions, uh, you know, with a resounding yes. Um, Mozambique has a lot of gas. Uh, it did need weapons to fight the insurgency. And Mozambique has had traditionally ties with uh, Moscow going back years ago to the Cold War and its liberation movement at the time. Uh, Mozambique's insurgency started around 2007. By 2019, uh, about 200 Wagner troops arrived uh, and they were dispatched to Cabo Delgado for several months. Uh, it didn't go well. They lost a lot of forces. The bodies were sent back to Russia and had trouble communicating with the army, the Mozambican army. They didn't speak the local language. Um, and uh, overall, the, the exercise was a failure, but I think it was still an interesting exercise um, maybe for Wagner's troops to see if they could actually fight this, uh, these jihadists and see if they could get sort of a hold in uh, southern Africa. Uh, around the same time that this happened, um, Russia was already in talks with uh, South Africa, Mozambique's neighbor, um, seeing if it, could, if it could strengthen ties with the Zuma government at the time, Jacob Zuma. And uh, overall, the, the exercise was a failure. By the end of 2019 or early 2020, most of the Wagner troops had gone. There was not very much uh, communication about that. Uh, Cabo Delgado is a very remote province and Wagner obviously operates uh, very uh, under the radar. So we don't have all the details, but uh, apparently the heavy losses that the Wagner troops uh, suffered uh, contributed to their departure. It's interesting, the sort of very different picture between Mozambique and the way you've portrayed uh, Central African Republic. Al-Shabaab in Mozambique, the Islamists in Cabo Delgado. 
I mean, it would be hard to argue that they're more ferocious than the, you know, the former Seleka rebels up in uh, Central African, African Republic's northeast. And yet it seems that in Mozambique, Wagner operatives really, they floundered. Whereas in the Central African Republic, as you say, they've really managed to make inroads into areas controlled by rebels. I mean, is it, what, what's the difference? Is it just the sort of numbers that were deployed in Central African Republic or is there, is there something else? Uh, I'm sure it was uh, several reasons. It was uh, numbers, a much larger force. Uh, there was a, a longer presence as well. So I think they had time to properly install themselves in the country. And again, with help from uh, official help from uh, or support, at least from Moscow, who was already implanted in the uh, the entire defense or military strategy of the government at the time. Um, there were genuine instructors that Wagner sent or that Russia sent as well, military instructors, instructors and a lot of weapons, uh, and they could train the local army in Central African Republic how to use those weapons, and they could take the army along with them while they went um, outside on their offensive. Uh, and I think it's a very different dynamic in, in Mozambique, where Wagner forces, uh, very few, uh, went in by themselves, uh, and not with this machine sort of of support that they had in uh, from Bangui. Pauline, what about uh, Mali, the latest country of interest to Russia? How does that fit into um, Russia's um, strategy on Africa? So Mali is a very interesting case because it, it, this would fit into the Russian strategy of expanding its influence in countries or regions where Western actors are very important. And when I say Western actors, of course, this is about France, as it was in Central African Republic, where France used to be the go-to country that would send help or that would send aid, that still sends aid to this day, uh, which has been usually influential as a former colonial power for that country. And of course, the same is happening in uh, in Mali. Um, France has failed in its military strategy to the extent, at least, that it hasn't been able to counter the jihadist insurgency there. And there's a swell of pro-Russian sentiment in Mali at the moment, actually in the entire Sahel region. Uh, this may be partly due to the propaganda machine that's being rolled out as we speak in some of these countries, but also because uh, I think a lot of people in the Sahel are generally very disappointed with the French military intervention and they are frustrated with the uh, jihadist insurgency that continues to expand. Um, and has caused so many deaths so far. So uh, for Russia, this would be great in terms of weapons deliveries, which they're already doing. They're providing weapons to Mali. I don't know about Niger, uh, but they do have ties with Burkina Faso as well. Uh, so it's a good market. Uh, but I think a key factor in all of this is really the presence of France and um a Russian fighting force in Mali obviously has already provoked France um, to the extent that Emmanuel Macron and the defense minister, Florence Parly, came out uh, very strong against uh, any possible uh, Wagner presence in Mali. It's caused huge consternation in Europe that Russia might actually get present there. And I think this is part of the Russian strategy, just to annoy Western powers and say, look, you think this is your your own area. Well, it's not. Other actors can come in too. Pauline, you and I have both called this a strategy. So is there, a, is it one, a strategy to dislodge France and, and Europe? Or does Russia have a cohesive security plan? Or is it just about making France pay a heavy price for its activities in, in the Sahel? 
I think it's mostly the latter. Uh, I don't think there's a clear uh, political strategy. There will be more of a security strategy. Uh, obviously, uh, to fight uh, jihadist insurgency in Mali would require much more than 200 or 2,000 Wagner troops who, again, don't speak the local language and don't know the terrain as well. It might be worth a try for Russia. I'm not really sure. I don't think there's a, a long-term political strategy tied to the military interventions, or that really does not seem to be the case. It's much more about mineral resources. And um, the Russian strategy, I think, again, if it is a strategy, is much more tied to uh, for-profit interventions. Wagner kind of pays itself because the it is already financed by Yevgeny Prigozhin, who has a network of companies, mostly mining companies, but also other companies. Russia really doesn't have to deploy any you know, development aid or money to help out. But it can then, on the back of the access that Wagner has gained, it can then come and influence politics at very low cost. So it's a sort of it has been described as a low-cost, low-risk strategy. Uh, Russia doesn't really lose anything. Russia can continue to deny any links to this entire operation and say, look, you know, we're just there. You know, we support whoever is in power, but we have nothing to do with this. I should clarify that uh, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin denies that he actually runs uh, Wagner. It's important to make sure that that denial is there, but he's sort of widely assumed to. But I mean, as you say, uh, Pauline, I mean, it's fighting jihadists in the Sahel. This seems like a, something that would be a stretch for, for Wagner, right? I mean, that seems like quite a place to get bogged down. It would be almost impossible to win this war, I think, if the UN peacekeeping force and the French and all the European powers who have tried this failed. Uh, again, I think it was already a clear political victory for Moscow to see the reaction this provoked in uh, in Europe, uh, that there were talks in Mali. And nothing has been concluded, as we know. Wagner may not come in at all, but the consternation that this has caused, uh, I think, uh, was already a small victory for, for Moscow. Yeah, if it's going to happen, we're really not sure yet. Huh? There have been talks. Wagner has been seen in, in Mali. Uh, again, there's a lot of questions about how Mali would actually pay these troops because it would need a significant force to come and fight, and Mali does not have the money to pay them. As you say, there's been this sort of furious French reaction. But in the end, what is Russia and, and, and Wagner offering? Are they really offering a genuine alternative to French military muscle in the Sahel? Or is France, by overreacting, sort of playing in some ways into not just Putin's hands, but also sort of increasing the leverage that Mali's... You know, the, there's been the coup recently, so military uh, 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 rulers of Mali at the moment sort of plays into their hands by allowing them to play one foreign power off against another. Oh, of course, of course. and it's But it's been very good for the transitional government in Mali also to say that it has contacts with Russia and that it supports Russia. I think we should also not underestimate that uh, a lot of countries, especially in the Sahel, are very tired of what they see as European meddling to very little results as far as they can see. And then it might be interesting to try a new partner who comes in with a different strategy, maybe more ruthless, more of a, uh, a stronger, uh, fierce kind of power that doesn't tie any kind of help to 
respect for democracy or human rights. I'm talking in the Sahel, where uh, the priority right now is the massive insecurity that's caused thousands of deaths and where people really don't know anymore how to deal with the jihadist issue. Um, so if somebody comes in with pure military force, I think that's an interesting, uh, interesting proposition. I remember what a decade ago, two decades ago, Comfort, you'll remember this, and, and Pauline, I'm sure, much, much better than I do, but there was the worrying in Western capitals about uh, ever more pervasive Chinese influence in, in Africa. And obviously now, if you look at now, there's there's sort of greater worry about what Russia's doing, but the two approaches will be hard to, to find a greater contrast in the two approaches. China is sort of very long-term infrastructure development. It says it doesn't get involved in politics. Russia, uh, more nimble, meddles in politics, uh, very military heavy. It's a very, very different approach that Russia's taken to the one that China's taken. It has, it has for sure. But there are some similarities, I think. Um, they're both... Uh, big powers and they both comes with very few strings attached. In some countries there's been some nostalgia for um, for the socialist days. Uh, in some socialist countries there was a very strong pan-African agenda, an anti-colonial agenda and Russia as well as China played into that and I think there's still some nostalgia for those days. And I think the similarities kind of stopped there. The difference between the two powers is that China now comes in, you know, with those big loans and those big infrastructure projects, but really stays away from, from politics as far as it can. Uh, it may support uh, sitting governments and show that support, but it doesn't interfere with any kinds of elections as far as we know. It has supplied uh, peacekeepers to some uh, UN forces, as has Russia, but uh, significantly less. And um, China has kind of a clean image, I think, in most uh, African countries, where it sees where you know we get we get big money, we get big infrastructure, but we don't uh, you know we don't get uh, we don't have to do anything else, but we can send our children to universities in China, which are very well established and uh, very reputable. Uh, Russia comes with a very different uh, sort of approach, lots of political influencing propaganda campaigns. Uh, yeah, so the contrast is really there. Uh, interestingly, it seems that um, China and Russia don't really seem to cooperate, for example, in Central African Republic, although there are some Chinese mining interests there. Pauline, and I mean, this is a, a good way to sort of get a sense from you. What can we expect as Russia prepares the ground for its next um, Africa-Russia summit that is expected to be held on the continent in 2022? Well, I'm sure that a lot of African leaders would be very interested in attending that summit. Um, I'm not sure what Russia is going to propose because obviously uh, it doesn't really have the money right now or the means to promise big, uh, big projects. The thing with the Russian approach is that it has been very opportunistic and very ad hoc. Like we saw in Mozambique, uh, they tried, it didn't work, they pulled out. Um, in South Africa, they, uh, Russia did support the ANC when Zuma was in power. Uh, those relations now seem to be have put in the fridge completely and there's no talk of Russia anymore. Uh, so it's really kind of hard to predict what country could be next, um, apart from the ones that we have discussed now. There's Russian interest in uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, of course, which have massive, which has massive mineral resources. Uh, but other than that, I think we should maybe look at the Sahel to see what's going to happen in Mali. And if there's any successful uh, Russian uh, footprint uh, in Mali in the coming years, if that could then be expanded into neighboring countries. And again, Russia will probably stay in Central African Republic for years to come. Um, what I heard is that they 
try to build a big uh, air base there, a military air base uh, that should sort of serve as a hub for Africa. Um, and combine that with a naval base in Sudan might be a very interesting uh, military footprint. So Pauline, could we just to end kind of bring it back to the Central African Republic? And you, you published this piece earlier this week, uh, looking again at Russia's role there. But if you're advising either Western capitals or the UN, or for that matter, Moscow, although I appreciate that's more difficult because, again, Moscow denies any links to, to Wagner. But if you're advising them, I mean, what are ways that somehow the value of Wagner as a military force, which you make clear to, to Tuadera, how can that sort of be, be reconciled with, in essence, you know, a, an approach that involves some sort of dialogue, which is going to be important in the Central African Republic? Other ways of sort of reconciling the two, or, or is it impossible that if Wagner's off fighting rebels up in the northeast, then the peace process is off the cards for now? Well, you know, given that uh, that Russia was instrumental in brokering the peace agreement uh, with uh, 14 rebel groups back in 2019, uh, it could maybe um, consider doing something similar again, whether Wagner is in the country or not, or maybe when Wagner has secured uh, all the towns and the cities that it uh, that it sees as essential and that the government sees as essential, maybe there will be time for for peace agreement and Russia could play a huge role there as it has before. I think it would be interesting to see if Russia at some point could consider more uh, formalizing Wagner as a proper Russian uh, fighting force when the time is there and then lift that shroud of secrecy over its military operations in Africa and say, hey, this is what we're doing and uh, it has borne fruit. I don't know if Russia wants to consider that ever. There have been some issues even in Central African Republic between the Russian embassy and the Wagner troops who don't seem to communicate uh, all the time. There, There's a clear disconnect there between what Russia is doing officially and what Wagner is doing. Um, Central African Republic would be a perfect laboratory to see how uh, you could bring those things together and then provide some transparency and show the benefits that Russia can bring to a country in crisis. Pauline, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Pauline. Thank you. So, Comfort, you obviously follow Africa geopolitics extremely closely. What do you take away from the conversation? So, um, Richard, Russia is part of you know Africa's complex and multipolar geopolitical landscape um, that includes not just the traditional Western powers, but China, Turkey, and the Gulf states as as well. And they're all vying for influence. And in the case of of Russia, um, seeking to reassert that influence, you know, that fell uh, by the wayside. When you listen to Pauline's analysis and dissection of Moscow's activities, whether it's in Kar, um, in Sudan, in Mali, Mozambique, and then you add to it in the mix all the other places that we didn't talk about, so DRC, Madagascar, South Africa, Zimbabwe, you begin to have a clear um, picture that Russia's engagement on the continent is a mixture of opportunism, financial interest in particular, mining interest, and also military um, cooperation. But there is another strand, Richard, that I think it's worth noting, and Pauline mentioned it as well, and it's what makes, I think, Russia's renewed interest even more significant today, and that is that there's clearly an effort, or at least a perceived effort, for Russia to set itself up as a challenger, particularly to France, for example. So it's very evident to us on the ground that Russia seeks to offer itself as an alternative external um, security partner to countries in the Sahel, and especially um, to, to Mali and to a certain extent 
Burkina Faso. And it has done well, as Pauline described, to play on the theme of a, of a very anti-French post-colonial resentment that we have seen in Mali coupled with a very sophisticated disinformation campaign. I think when you put all of this into the bigger context of global geopolitics, this too is about Russia seeking to bolster its global clout, especially at a time when you said at the top of the podcast, Richard, that it is now facing this very tense and deteriorating relationship with Western powers. So you know, there is a sense then for Russia that Africa becomes interesting because it becomes a, a place where it can win more allies, more friends, and look to bolster its sphere of influence as well. But I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on how you see Russia's own engagement on the continent today. Yeah, you know, I, I think you put it really well. I mean, it strikes me there's always this sort of obsession with Russia, sort of, does Putin have a strategy? And to be fair, I think people in Moscow and Russians sort of agonise this over, over this as much as people do in, in the West. I guess this sort of common refrain, especially in Western capitals, that, you know, Putin's not strategic, he's opportunist. But I think what comes out of the conversation is, is that there's something quite strategic to Putin's opportunism. You know, although Russia isn't a power in Africa like China or the US or collectively the Europeans, Moscow sort of made a post-Cold War return to the continent real enough. The other thing that struck me was something that Pauline said, particularly about Twadera. And I think you sort of can't underestimate the appeal for leaders like Twadera or, or others of what Moscow is offering, particularly in Central African Republic, for example, where you have these rebels you know, a lot of them uh, are the former Seleka rebels that, that captured the country briefly, you know, so, some years ago. They've repeatedly signed and then ignored peace deals. You know, they're, by all accounts, motivated in large part by criminality, controlling mining, mining interests, predation. And actually, we should get our Central African Republic expert hands onto the podcast next year to talk more in depth about the Central African Republic. But clearly, it's attractive to a leader to have an offer of just sort of pure military muscle to take on these rebels and to try and defeat them without having to, to compromise. But the reality in the Central African Republic, as in Mali, as in many other places, is that it's quite unlikely that a military approach alone is going to work. I mean, that might be frustrating to leaders, but probably the only way out is some form of accommodation. Now, we didn't talk about Libya. On this podcast, we focus mostly on sub-Saharan Africa. But there, too, Wagner has been really a, quite an important presence fighting on the side of Khalifa Haftar, one party to the conflict. And there, Wagner wasn't even fighting on behalf of the internationally recognized government. And, you know, in some ways, if it hadn't been for Turkey's intervention, I think people who were listening to, to the podcast almost a year ago now might remember that we talked a little bit about how Turkey turned the course of Libya's war. But if it hadn't been for that, in large part, thanks to Wagner's support, Haftar appeared on the verge of capturing Tripoli and ousting the internationally recognized government. So I think... Obviously, it should be clear that Western powers in many places have also been very military heavy. I mean, if you think of what they're doing in the Sahel or Somalia, but still, I think having Wagner sort of floating around as an option, disconnected from any diplomacy, overall, I think it's not a good thing for the continent. You're, you're right, Richard. And I would add one more thing. I think what worries a number of people, first, I think there's an overstating of Russia's influence and role on the continent. It doesn't have the same leverage all the time, financial capital in the same way as, as the US and particularly China, and its pockets is not as deep as China, for example. 
But I think what worries um, Western powers is Russia's, you know, efforts to bolster some embattled um, strongmen, increasing arms sale, support to autocratic leaders. And I think what what we at Crisis Group really do emphasise, and I, th- and I think, you know, we, we try to underline very carefully, is that we should avoid falling into a trap of implying that the West actually does apply consistently you know, things around transparency and, and democracy in contrast to Russia and, and China. And this seems to me very far from the case and it feeds into an unhelpful perceived sort of binary division. But I think that's very different when you look at reality on the ground as well. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Comfort Aero. And I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on our website, crisisgroup.org, or follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Thank you very much to our producers, Sam Mednick, Kevin Murphy, and to Krabas El Misawi. And thank you, as ever, to all our listeners. Please do leave us a question, a comment. If you like the show, give us a positive rating or review, and we hope you'll all join us again next week. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.